If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash Fred Opie show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie show where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Today's show is a best of interviews with me, Fred Opie, and my students. Each semester, I interview each and every one of my students, usually around five to eight minutes each. And I ask them questions as a way of developing a sense of team and unity and trust among the class and it helps the class go a lot better and at the end of the course I give my students the option of interviewing me I've done that over many years and I decided let's do a best of show and what I did is take the questions and my responses and put them in chronological order because I'm an historian so you can hear the trajectory of my life and life experiences from being a kid to the decision to go to Syracuse University where I was a student athlete to why I decided to become an historian, focus my research and work and writing and publications on food history. I talk about meeting the lovely Dr. Tina Opie, my wife, about my father, my mother, her influence the whole shebang as it were. Enjoy it, share it, and tell me what you think about it. I'd love to hear your feedback and what you got out of it. So here is today's podcast, the best of Fred Opie. This comes on finishing up a summer course, a terrific course I taught on African diaspora history, history. And there are interviews, students who took the same course between roughly 2015 to 2020. Enjoy, folks. Most interesting, aha, I didn't know that. Uh, food traveled across continents and think back even further than I've already been thinking. It's just interesting to see how national cuisines are formed and then how those cuisines that were formed from the weirdest areas or ways became their, their sense of pride or whatnot. Like how much of our food on our plates and comes from Africa and how like the influence of the transatlantic slave trade has impacted food ways here in America, also in other post-colonial places like Jamaica and how like across the board a lot of the foods are different but each one has like a national um, like specialty or like a national twist and it's, it's neat to think that they all came from Africa. How much I had a very westernized perspective in terms of the African diaspora because I remember one incident we were talking about um, why there were so many male slaves and the one thing we kept talking about was uh, the white um, owners wanted stronger people and we were like, oh, that's why? And then we learned the reason why was like, you know, women weren't being sold because African valued the women and that was like something I didn't really think about. See things from the other side, so that was like an interesting thing to learn in this class. So. so many things about candy cloth that I didn't know. Here I am rocking these candy cloth bow ties and, and the guy that's from Ghana is like, we don't do that. <laughs> I don't think I've wore candy cloth bow ties since your presentation. 
Big and bad. I am not authentic. What makes food authentic? And I always think back to that question about uh, is authentic just because it was homemade or just because it was made with food from that area? But I realized that's a really hard question to answer. Before this course, I didn't know that there was such a large um, black population in Mexico, which I actually just learned like the other day from doing the the podcast. Um, and I know that's not super specific, but I was kind of shocked, honestly. It's shocking for Mexicans too, believe me. The difference in how the way we speak and the way we say things can make on how a story is interpreted. So who it gives agency to and how we talk about enslaved people. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, being from Brazil, I didn't know that feijoada was a contribution of the African oh. diaspora. It's my favorite dish, too. I could probably survive on feijoada for my entire life. As a result of this course, I now know how to... I know how to understand a whole book in like an hour. I don't think you're going to appreciate that skill more than when you get out into the work world because there's so much that comes at you that you have to be able to quickly go... It's just how to use Photoshop, and I think that was a really useful skill that just, you know, is applicable everywhere. I started using Adobe Audition on my computer. I didn't even know that was on the school <laughs> computer. I didn't know what it was until you pulled it up. I learned how to use Adobe Audition. Have you ever thought about teaching XYZ? I've taken two of your classes now. I thought that you were really good at instilling confidence in students and teaching public speaking. Especially for someone that's shy, I think that you really bring out people's voices. So I think something kind of centered around like public speaking, speeches, something like that would be a good, helpful course. The whole business behind podcasting and help students who are interested and learn more about it. I was able to learn so much by doing the podcasting and the blogging. And I wish you did have a course that took it to the next level of podcasting with a different mic or with an H6 or with an adapter or kind of next level um, if we enjoyed these skills, take it into our own creative, uh, our own creative ways. Um, something that I found super interesting is that you made us learn without knowing that we were learning. Throughout the course, I always thought I was learning about African diasporas, but actually we learned so much more. We learned the podcasting, the blogging, and about life, and I wasn't even aware that I was learning that stuff. So I thought that was super interesting. You could call your special sauces that you teach students, like, to learn about themselves or, like, really realize, like, the important people in their lives, like, with the interviews. By answering the questions, I felt kind of, like, I was realizing, like, the important people in my life, like, the heroes, highlights. Like, I was just, like, you teach us to be grateful, like, more than anything. Teach other professors how to teach fully online courses, because that's one thing that I found as I was taking my other summer classes was, oh, I wish they would do it more like Professor Opie, or I wish, like, I thought that you had a lot that you could probably teach other professors, especially going to this new age. The show will be right back. For related content, visit our website at fredopie.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. I live by the mantras, agents of positive change focus their energy on learning. Learners are earners, and We are the sum total of the people we spend time with and the books we read. Purchase a great book, audiobook, or CD during our fantastic $10.99 or less limited time offer sale. We have slashed the price on my Zona Hurston biography and on Southern Food and Civil Rights, the history of the role of food and U.S. movements from the Great Depression to Occupy Wall Street. Cook and bake the related historic recipes in the pages of these riveting food history books. 
read my sports autobiography and self-improvement book, Start With Your Gift, and my latest book, Super 7, and learn how to be more creative and productive. These and other great books, audiobooks, and CDs, all for $10.99 or less while supplies last. And here's some even better news. If you spend $30 or more, we're going to give you a free CD and ship your order for free. All orders will ship in 48 hours because we want you to get these resources as soon as possible. Go to our online store at fredopiespeaks.com and order now. Be a difference maker. Use your smartphone or computer and purchase two or more paperback copies. Give them away and make a positive impact on someone's life. Welcome back to this edition of The Fred Opie Show. Ask any question you want. What is the thing you know about your family history? That I have a great-great-grandfather who was from the Caribbean and that the family name originally was O-P-I-A, Opia. My friends will think it's Nigerian or Senegalese. Do you have like a specific childhood memory or person from your childhood that you think has impacted your life today? Like elementary, middle school, or high school? Or? Like elementary. School was tough. I mean, it was really tough. And then my family moved from a town that had about 10% African-American. And my mother's experience growing up in that town was African-Americans didn't get a lot of opportunities because of that. So she moved to a predominantly white community and the problem that they didn't understand was it was a community where you were expected to assimilate and acculturate to them. And so they wanted you, but they didn't want your culture. And it was really hard. And a lot of insensitive things were done or said by teachers and students because they didn't know. I mean, it's hard enough being a kid, period. But then you had any dimension of being different, and it was hard. So I don't have these favorable memories of when I was in elementary school, when I was in middle school. I don't really have those stories. Why Syracuse? It's a very interesting question. So as a high school athlete, I developed self-esteem from athletics because I was, the learning disability I had made school so hard for me. I mean, there was no ego, no scratching of the itch with school. It was really hard. But the place where I got the ego scratched and developed self-esteem was was on the field. So I quickly decided I want to win a national championship. That was about as deep as I was. And so I wanted to originally go to Maryland, but I recruited Maryland. They didn't recruit me. So they actually ended up offering me a scholarship, like a quarter scholarship, but it wasn't anything. And that year, a guy I played against in high school, who's now a Hall of Famer, he transferred into Syracuse the year they won their first championship in 1983. And I saw him uh, at a party, I ended up going to a junior college about 90 miles from Syracuse. So I ended up going up, I had a relative at Syracuse. I ran into this old opponent and he said, so what are you doing next year? I said, well, I'm you know, applying to Maryland and getting recruited by them. I really wasn't getting recruited by them. He said, well, you know, you should think about coming here. He said, all three of our starting defensemen, which was my position, they're all graduating, so you should think about coming here. He said, I really like it. So he told the coach about me, and they began to recruit me. And then Syracuse played in Maryland in the quarterfinals and beat Maryland. And by that time, you know, I'm thinking I want to win a national championship. That's, so I'm like, going to Syracuse. They won their first national championship. I came in on scholarship. That's why I went there. I just happened to fall into being around good teammates were positive influences with me, but it had nothing to do with school, career, or monetizing my gift. I was pretty shallow at that point. 
So how would one of your teammates in college describe you back in the days? Well, back in the day? Yeah. High school or college? Definitely college. Uh, college? I think they would tell, I think they would say hardworking, dedicated, tough. I think they would say uh, all in. I think that's what they would tell you. What was your favorite part about playing lacrosse at Syracuse? Imagine being a junior in college. You come out the locker room and all these people are lined up to, to sign, for you to sign autographs. It was a kind of a weird, surreal thing. You're playing on national TV, losing by the way, <laughs> in the championship game. It was unbelievable. The relationships that I developed are still a big part of my life and I still love the game of lacrosse, but I, I had to change the focus. There was way too much focus on sports and not enough on the rest of my life. So it was almost like you ever see people who go to the gym and their upper bodies are like muscle bound and you look at their legs, they look puny. That's how I was. It was just one part of my life very well developed and the other part of my life looked like it was anorexic. There's moments in the course that you've talked or hinted about like your faith. If you're like comfortable doing so, I was wondering if you could share a little bit like how it has like evolved through the years and how it impacts your work. So when I went off to Syracuse, coming back to your question, I was all about, all about sports. That was it. That was my God. I mean, really, it was, it was my God. When I got to Syracuse, I was in, I say, seeking mode. I thought all I needed to be happy and satisfied was a national championship. So here it is. I'm a recruited athlete on scholarship for the number one ranked team in the country. I get there and I never had an interior feeling in my life. I was like, what? Like everything you want, you got, and you feel empty, you feel dissatisfied. And it was right at that moment, it was almost like God had tricked me to get there. Everything you wanted, now what you think, buddy? It was, it was literally like that. And it was at that point that people came into my life who uh, had a faith and I, I made a commitment to Jesus Christ at that point. And I was in a Bible study that was with athletes. So when you talk about the influencers, I mean, these guys were influencers and I was in a Bible study with that. That probably did more to help me think, first of all, learn who I actually really was because I was convinced that I was an athlete and I was dumb. I was pretty convinced. I stayed eligible because I wanted to stay on the field. So my undergrad at GPA, I've alluded to this, was a, like a 2.3. Never a great student. But think about it. With the learning disability I had, didn't have medication, didn't have therapy, didn't have any of that, I actually graduated. It was pretty phenomenal to think. But was after that point, I been, began to reevaluate what I was gifted to do. And when I tapped into that, I mean, things changed. It was almost like, whoa. That's why when I would run into guidance counselors, people from high school, and they'd say, I got, I got inducted to my high school hall of fame. And I ran into uh, my coach. And I remember when I first got the scholarship offer to go to Syracuse, I had to go to junior college first, community college. And he said, so what are you going to do next year after the community college? I said, I'm going to Syracuse. And he looked, he looked at me and he goes, Syracuse? He goes, you'll never play. I mean, he literally said that to me. And so to go back to school and see these people with all the changes, it's obvious something happened in my life. And I think the faith would be the something. It, it, it determines, it motivates everything I do, without a doubt. It's my, you know, my center. Yeah. What are some of the things you do to feed yourself? So I, every morning, I mean, my kids, my parents, my wife could tell you, every morning I'm going to be downstairs and I'm going to be 
reading scripture, praying, working out. That's like every day. And it just makes, it gives me like the balance. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that comes at you. There's a lot of stuff that comes at you as a parent, but having that, having that foundation in my life of prayer, scripture, worship, and then working out, I think is, is the critical for me. Without those, like I would never leave my house without prayer. To me, that's like be going into Iraq without a helmet or a gun. I would just never do that. Yeah. What's your favorite book in the Bible? Uh, I think it would be my favorite scripture would be James, James chapter one. Count it all joy when you fall into uh, different tests and trials, because you know that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be entire, wanting nothing. That would be my one. Faith and patience, the power twins. Being on the national stage, you probably had fans, like kids asking for your autograph. You were probably kids' role models. Like they probably were like, I want to play lacrosse because of him. How did you like handle that? I tell my kids, what is famous? Famous is what people think about you now. And that changes from day to day. So, you know, how people remember you and how you think about you. For me, it's more important that I run into people and they can say, you know, you did this and it had an, a positive influence on me. But it is, it's a weird thing. And my kids, they sometimes are with me and they'll mention my name and people go, your dad's who? I don't know how it is for them, but it's a little weird. My wife, same thing. I, when I met my wife, I did not talk about my sports background. It was one of her classmates in, in their MBA program that I ex, had to explain to her. It's still weird, put it that way. And people also will remember things that never happened. You know, so I scored a goal in one of the national championship games. And to hear people interpret how the goal was, I'm like, when I come to be a guest speaker, they'll uh, introduce me and say, he won two national championships at Syracuse. And the first thing I have to do when I get to the mic go is correction. I played in two national championships and got waxed in both of them. You know, stuff like that happens all the time. I became an historian because... My mother had three boys, Frederick Douglass, I'm named after him. My brother named after A. Philip Randolph, the organizer and the organizer of the March on Washington, and then my other brother Marshall named after Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American Supreme Court judge. So I was raised in a home where history was valued to a great degree, and I certainly was influenced uh, to go in that direction. I remember seeing a documentary on W.B. Du Bois after I got out of college, it seemed like fascinating. So I just kept gravitating more and more. And then I took this class after I graduated from undergrad. It was at a public library. It was like one of these career exploration courses, something you would take in career services. And it was free. It was like a seven-week course. I was, I was probably the youngest person in the course. But we took these assessments, and everything pointed to teaching, which I, I was doing, but teaching at the college level and then teaching the subject of history. So that's when I decided to go back to grad school to study history. Now, the food part came in because I had the opportunity uh, when I was in grad school to teach a course to a bunch. Of, it was like a seminar, a health seminar. And the course of action I did was to study what affected the diet and the health of African-Americans. I had a grandmother who had diabetes and really poor health. Both my grandmothers, real bad health. Um, my other members of my family just were problems with obesity. And I wanted to find out what was the food connection to 
some of the things that African Americans were, were suffering in terms of health, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, a lot of those kind of stuff. Matter of fact, one of my cousins not that long ago, I mean, he's, he's my age. He had to have uh, a part of his body amputated because of diabetes. So I wanted to know what the food I'll connection was. Yeah. yeah, and so that's why I ended up doing food history. And my first book, Hog and Hominy, we used in this class, it came out right when everything was going on with the Food Network and food all over the news. So it was like perfect timing. All of a sudden, I was getting radio shows and documentary and TV shows calling me up, asking me about my work. I had no idea that it was going to have that kind of impact. So I made a decision. At that time, I was focusing on Latin American history, people of African descent in Latin America. And then I just changed everything from Latin America and food, African American and food, African food. And that's how I ended up here. It, was, it wasn't a plan. It just, everything started coming there. And it was great. I remember, to, to finally answer that question, my first book out was a book on uh, migration to Central America and working with the banana industry. And I kept submitting it to publishers to get it published. And on my, on my resume, it also said work in progress, this book on soul food. They kept rejecting the migration story and kept asking in their return letters, uh, we don't, we're not interested in this other project, but we see here you're interested in working on this book on food and soul food. So that happened like 15 times before I went like, duh. And I started pitching that first, and that book came out before the book on migration, which came out several years afterwards. So that, that's how it happened. Great question. Long answer. Sorry about that. Um, how did you and Mrs. Obi meet? Ooh, juicy one. <laughs> and in what moment did you know she was the right one? Oh, boy. <laughs> that was, that's not fair. <laughs> So the church that I went to before I went to grad school, I did my master's degree at school down in Pennsylvania, and then I would commute. This is when I was still playing, actually. So I played for a team called Maryland Lacrosse Club. So on the weekends, I would leave Pennsylvania, and somebody before I got down and told me this really good church in D.C. Keep in mind, Pennsylvania, South Central Pennsylvania, there ain't a lot of black folks. So I was going to D.C., nicknamed Chocolate City, to actually have a social life. So I went to this church, a big congregation. I left there, would go to my lacrosse games in the afternoon in Baltimore, and then I would come back to Gettysburg College where I was teaching, where I was coaching. Uh, I finished a master's degree, went to Syracuse, did all the coursework, and then ended up back in D.C. because I was doing research at the National Archives. So it allowed me to be back in D.C., go back to my church. So I met my wife at a Friday night Bible study at my home church. I was gone. She joined the church, and she didn't know me, and I didn't know her. My wife was the toughest woman to let down her guard. She's from um, Alexandria, Virginia, right outside D.C., and the ratio of men to women, because of incarceration, because of a lot of crap, uh, there is seven guys, seven women for every one guy. All right? Seven women for every one guy. Two African Americans. So men run games on women in that area like nobody's business. The first time I asked her to go out on a date, we're going to go get coffee, she refused to ride in my car. She wouldn't take separate cars. 
So she brought a girlfriend with her and I brought a guy friend with me. She didn't want to just go one-on-one with me. I don't know who this guy is, right? So <laughs> that's how she was. She would never give me her phone number. It came down to Easter weekend. <clears throat> I'm going to Mexico to give my first conference, a paper at a conference. And I said, look, if you want to get together, we got to do this because I'm leaving. Because after, after the conference, I'm staying in Mexico for six months and I won't be back. Reluctantly, she gave me her number. And the only reason she gave me the number, she told me later, because she was leading to go to Darden School to get an MBA, and she knew the number wouldn't work after a while. <laughs> that's the only reason she gave me the number. I mean, that's, that, seriously. So she gave me the number, we talked, and when I called her, she picked up the phone to turn me down. She did not want to actually go out on a regular date. She was picking up the phone to start telling me, and so I had to like talk her out of turning me down on the first date. So the answer to your question is no, I did not think this was gonna be the, the one because when you're in graduate school, you kinda of know everybody and women don't put you through all that trauma. They kinda of know who you are. It took a very long time. Matter of fact, she gave me such a hard time. I was like, forget her, and I was, you know, move on. It was, there were some other women, African-American women, that when I would tell her about the stuff she was putting me through, they were like, ooh, I like her. Yeah. Oh, she did that too? Oh, I like that. Oh, that's good. It's like people I respected told me that's good marriage material. When she finally opened the door to allow us to talk and communicate, then I was like, but it, it didn't happen right away. Not at all. We're going to take a commercial break. This is The Fred Opie Show. We'll be right back. My wife, Dr. Tina Opie, worked as a management consultant before earning her PhD at NYU Stern School of Business and becoming a tenured faculty member at Babson College. She has worked with the NFL, UBS, American Express, and Hulu to help their organizations do the hard work of becoming more inclusive. Tina Opie's consulting group can help your organization develop a strategy for elevating women and people from different racial ethnic backgrounds to leadership positions. Tina's work on inclusion, appearance policies, authenticity, and or shared sisterhood will make a positive difference in your organization. Contact Tina at OP Consulting Group, LLC at gmail.com. That's OP Consulting Group, LLC at gmail.com. We're back. What is something or maybe a few things that you've learned um, from parenting? I, that's, a, that's a really good question. Well, so here's the one that most recently, my son is 16, my daughter is 13. <coughs> I've had to rethink parenting and no longer parent them like children. That has been the toughest thing. That they are now young adults, they've both been through puberty, they both could have kids if they wanted to. And in many parts of the world, they would be married and have kids. And so you can't keep parenting your teenagers like children. And I think that's a big problem. So we've had to rethink that a whole lot and it's been very hard. But also that, particularly my son, they want the freedom, but the responsibility they don't want. And so how do you, how do you prepare a child to be ready to launch? That's the phase that we're in now. Is everything we're doing is trying to get him to the point where when he launches, he'll launch successful. And also, allowing both of them to fail without trying to keep them from failing. Just let them fail and learn from the failures. Probably 
one of the hardest things in the world when you see your kid and you're going, you don't have to do it like that, but they insist <laughs> on it and you got to just kind of sit back and let them go and, and, and bite your tongue and go, I told you so. <laughs> That's probably the hardest one. Uh, what's the most difficult thing about teaching? Huh. The most difficult thing about teaching is when you're working with students and you're not, you want more for them than they want for themselves. That could be really difficult, particularly when you see very talented people who are not given their best effort. And it's like, wow, you could, you could do so many things with your life if you just gave effort. So that can, that can be really frustrating. It's a lot like parenting, to be quite honest with you. When you see you know, your child with a lot of potential and not using it all, it can be really, can be really frustrating. I think, secondly, it can be difficult when you are trying to get across stuff to students that you know they're going to need, but they don't necessarily see it. And there's often a kind of a conflict because you're like, you need to eat this spinach, you need to eat this spinach. And the student's like, I hate this spinach. What was the worst experience you had pitching a book? My first book was rejected 15 times. And you can get really discouraged about getting rejected 15 times, but my athletic background prepared me because when you're a player, coaches and fans and everybody else, there's a lot of haters out there. So you have to learn how to stay focused despite the negative thing. You also, that's where the principle of evaluation of the Super 7 comes in because I quickly learned when the rejection letters came, I would read through them really carefully and look for the suggestions on how to improve the book. And it made a huge difference. So when I finally got it accepted, I learned a lot. But I always say, if the book hadn't got it rejected 15 times, I would not have the empathy to explain to young new authors of how to do the process. If it was easy for the first time, I'd be like, what's wrong with you? Why can't you do it? You're stupid, you know? But now I really understand how to explain to people the process and how to tell them to have tough skin as they go through it. I mean, there were some times where people, when they rejected it, were not really nice. And I had to learn how to quickly. The, the day my book got accepted, I literally got a rejection from one press. I took the positive feedback and the same day turns around and pitched it to the press that ultimately accepted it. So it's, it's just why I teach about the importance of failing forward. What's one stand-up that, that you recommend to everyone? Stand-up comedy. I've written some stand-up routines. I haven't had the courage to do it yet. But a stand-up routine from the position of being a professor. I'll never forget, this happened about four years ago, where one of the students, she was stressed out. I mean, really stressed out. She hadn't been to class in a couple of days. So the day she came back to class and made a guest appearance, as it were, you know what I mean? You've probably seen people like that. We were reviewing for an exam for the midterm. And her first response when she sat down and heard there was a midterm in the next class was, what the F? An F-bomb, super loud. Everybody heard it. We're in a small classroom. And everybody immediately just like, looked at me like, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? What's he going to do? That's what I would put in my comedy routine, stuff like that. Things that come up in class that if you're a teacher or professor, 
at one of these national conferences that we go to to do a routine like that. I, I need to get the guts and the boldness up, but I think, I think I could probably make people laugh from some of the stuff I've seen over 18 years. Do you think you're a good professor? How I know that I was a good professor with you all, it'll be 20 years from now. When you all are running your companies, when you all are possibly married or have kids, the information that I'm sharing with you about history is only one faceted of it. It's, did I get across to you the importance of hard work? Did I get across to you the importance of effort? Did I get across to you the importance of integrity? And integrity is, you know, researching and making sure you're accurate and making sure you can um, verify your things. Did you learn how to treat people the right way? Did you learn how to answer questions without making people feel as though the question they asked were stupid? All those things will take about 20 years for me to know if I was a good teacher. And that is my honest answer. I'm not just blowing smoke when I say that. It'll take 20 years to know if I was a good teacher with you. Did you always want to be a professor or a teacher in some ah! capacity? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um, first of all, I barely got out of high school. Your professor has severe ADHD, like on steroids. I was never a great student. In high school, never made honor roll. As an undergrad, never made honor roll or dean's list. It really wasn't until graduate school, as I got older and my frontal cortex fully developed, that my mind came together. No, the furthest thing from my mind <laughs> was that I'd be a teacher at the college level. I did teach and my undergraduate degree was in education, but it really wasn't until uh, later on. It was late. It was probably 26, 27. I took an online course at a public library, a free course, and that course pointed to everything that you see me doing now. That's why I laughed because, no, I didn't. I did not expect that at all. You always ask us this, and I'm just curious to know what, like, the three people that are alive, the dinner. Oh, ooh, oh, that's a that's a tough one. Uh, three people dead or alive with me. Who would I go with? One of them I know is a guy named Paul Robeson, and Paul Robeson was a All American athlete. Uh, this is 19 turn of the century. He was an All-American athlete at Rutgers University, football and some other sports. Um, he also was an outstanding singer. I mean, like operatic type of voice. If you, if you, just, you guys should just Google Paul Robeson. Fascinating guy. He later became a communist, became blacklisted during the, uh, the whole kind of uh, 1930s and World War II. So that would be, that would be one person. I think my namesake, Frederick Douglass, would be pretty cool uh, to do that. My grandfather. On both sides of my family, my grandfathers died before I was born. That would be awesome. Yeah, I think those two. Those two guys and maybe Paul Robeson to be able to have dinner with my grandfathers. Oh, that, that would be really cool now that I think about it. Was there any specific person that influenced you to start podcasting? My first book came out, which you all read, Hog and Hominy. It came out right when the Food Network was coming on. So all of a sudden, the book and the press, Columbia University Press, got me all these interviews on um, national radio shows. 
that experience exposed me to doing radio, which I'd never had before. And several times people say, wow, you got a really good voice. You ought to think about, you know, doing like a radio show. And then I also had, after that book came out, I did some, some documentaries. Um, I've been on the History Channel. I've been on the PBS documentary. And after those appearances came up, then I had producers calling me and vetting me for a show, to be a host for like a food show. That happened three times. It never worked out, but it planted a seed. So I wanted to do a show on National Public Radio, which I listened to a lot. And I tried to do it, created a sizzle reel and all that kind of stuff. It never came to fruition. Right around the same time, I started podcasting. And I realized that I probably could get a radio. Uh, it probably would be better for me to get a, uh, a, do a podcast because I'd have more control over the content. I wouldn't have to beg me, people to, to buy commercials on it. So that's what it was. And then there's been a couple podcasters that, that I would recommend to you all. Um, Lewis Howe, a, a show called um, The School of Greatness. Fantastic guest he has. Um, I'm a big Dave Ramsey fan. I, I run my finances around Dave Ramsey. He's got the second, the second most listened to talk show here in the United States. But he does three hours every day of his show live where people just call in and he answers questions about finances. I listen to the show every time. I think it's great. There's, a, there's probably about six podcasts that if you go on my blog, fredobie.com, and to my podcast at the bottom, I have a list of them. So it was listening to these really great shows that made me inspired to do it. And most recently, with all the protests that are going on in the streets, I've changed my content. My podcast started off of being like a food show and then another show that was sports. But after this stuff started happening in the streets, I was like, I went into like uh, activist mode and I've been doing a lot more of the kind of work that I do and presenting information. For example, I did a podcast uh, last week, the week before on comparing the Black Panther Party to the Black Lives Matter movement. I did it, the interview with my wife. You guys heard a little segment from that. And I'm just more realizing that I need to be speaking to these issues because as an historian, I can probably add something to this that the average person wouldn't. So long answer, but that's how it started. This is the Fred Opie Show. We'll be right back. The success I've experienced on and off the field, in relationships and professionally, are a result of what I call my Super 7. Seven principles that I developed over time that if you apply them, they will make a positive difference in your life. Purchase a copy of the book today on fredopiespeaks.com or wherever books are sold. Our scripture of the day is Psalm chapter 37 verses 3 through 5. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will do this. Mark Twain said, Kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. We're back. What do you think is the most frustrating part of being a professor? When you see people living below their ability, you see a lot of talented people who... uh, for whatever reason, maturity, time. When you see students trying to spend more time how to get out of trying to get out of work, they're just, just bearing down and doing it. 
Or, so that's one. The other one is when you see students who, they, they have so much ability, but they don't believe in themselves. That, that's like really rough when you say to somebody, you know, do you realize you're a really good writer? Do you realize you're a really good speaker? Do you realize? And they don't. And as much as you say it, they don't, they don't realize it yet. So, you know, if a question I often would ask people when I interviewed them, I don't think I asked one of you this question, but I said, if you have a superpower, which one would you want? And a person that I interviewed on my show said this, and I just think it, it was so profound and a gift I'd want. I don't want the gift to give some people confidence because there are so many students who could do even more if they just knew they had the ability. I see that with prisoners. They just don't know how smart they are. I mean, some of these guys, you meet these guys, they're good looking, they're strong. They write these phenomenal pieces of poetry and you're like, they don't realize how much they could do. So the people who don't work hard and don't realize the benefit of working hard are the people that just don't realize how much talent and ability they have. And they live beyond. It's like they're living like a pulper when they can live like a king because they just don't know. That, that would probably be the one. That actually got me a little choked up. Good question. What do you think is the biggest advice you'd have for someone like our age, like undergraduates, like just, you know, to be successful the next 10 years and beyond? Learn how to handle your money. Without a doubt. I, I don't care if you come for money. You need to learn how to handle your money. Again, I didn't know this stuff before. The number one cause of divorce in the United States, the number one cause is money problems. Fights over money, money problems. Number one. So if, if you knew the number one cause of death for 20 to 25 years old, if you knew the number one cause of death was X, you would work on X, right? So if I tell you the number one cause of divorce in America is money problems, you want to learn how to handle money problems, right? There's a book called The Total Money Makeover. Get the audio book or get the hard copy, learn how. Related to that is avoid debt like the plague. You got to avoid debt. The only debt my wife and I have is a 15-year-old mortgage on a house. That's it. I don't own credit cards. I have debit cards. That's it. My cards are paid for everything we have except for our mortgage. And if I had done this earlier, I'd be close to being a millionaire sooner. Most people would rather die than public speak. But if you can learn how to master public speaking, and then you can master an expertise in a subject matter, there's really no stopping you. So that would be probably the other thing I would say. Then the third one is be extremely careful about who do you decide to have to be your friends around you. But even more important, whoever you decide to get involved with romantically, whether it's going to lead to marriage or not, oh my gosh, that can, that can make or break your life, having the right person in your life. Those would be the three things that, that I would say. Handle your money. Avoid debt. I don't care if you want to start a business. Forget investors. Keep investors out of your business so you can control. Even if it means slower. Right? As entrepreneurs... Work on getting on the cover of Slow Magazine. If you focus on trying to get your business up and running fast, you're going to be having investors in your pocket telling you what to do. You're going to have bankers in your pocket telling you what to do. If you can build what you're going to do and do it without debt, you're going to have a ton more success than other, other people. Think about all these folks with COVID, right? If you were, as a business person, if you ran your business, your restaurant ever, 
and it was it was just leveraged out with debt or investors in your pocket you you didn't survive this but if you have a ton of money like real estate when i'll start buying real estate i know this is going to be radical for you all but if you can buy your real estate cash do your investments cash <laughs> i mean the cash flow coming when you don't owe debt on your property is amazing but all these things I'm saying to you is swimming upstream from everything that you're learning in school and what people will tell you. So I'd say cash is king. Make sure you have the right relationships. And probably number four that, that I would say is that you got to have your, your trinity together. You got to have your spirit, your soul, and your mind together. I mean, fitness is, is so important to me because I understand None of this stuff is going to be anything if I'm not whole and healthy and able to do it. I got to have my mind together, my spirit together, my body together. So no matter how successful you are, make sure you take care of those three and, you, and you know, you, they have a lot of success. Again, that's another one that's kind of a passion for me. And your best piece of advice or a couple pieces for kids about to graduate? Don't look at the first job as the job. Get as many skills as you can. And when you see a job, that will give you a skill. Get the skill and don't worry about the salary. Uh, if you had to choose another uh, career path, which one would you choose? What would you be? I, I'm kind of doing it now, which is uh, to create content that, and a lot of the questions I ask you all is, you know, like the question, if you were going to write a, a book of success, what would be uh, the three chapters? I mean, that's what I'm doing now. I'm writing more now about the explanation of how I went from being a really poor student to learning how to learn and learning how to teach. I, as I mentioned earlier in the class, I think it was Tuesday night. I'm in a, I'm in a, it was last night. Yeah. Last night I'm in a prison, maximum security prison. And I'm talking to prisoners with correction officers all around. And it was amazing, just sharing some of the same, talk about reconstruction, we talked about Juneteenth, and then I gave a chance to talk about my book, Start With Your Gift. The reception was amazing. These guys were just thirsty and hungry. So the ability to do something like that on a full-time basis, to go around and share ways that people who don't necessarily know what their gifts are and how to monetize them, that would be something I wouldn't, I'd want to do full-time because I, I have students come in my class all the time and the only message they've heard for the last 10 years is go to college, go to college, go to college. And then they get to college and they're like, what's next? They don't have, they don't have a next because nobody's ever planned them for a next. So that's what I'm trying to do now is explain to people what your gifts are and this is how you can use them to not only monetize that gift but make the world around you a better place. So that's what I would want to do full-time. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Where do I see myself in 10 years? That's a good question. A multimillionaire that has the ability to give money to the kind of things that I really want to support. Now, one of the things that are, that's on my affirmation list of, of things to do is to do a whole lot more teaching in prisons. That's a thing I've done. I loved I'd love to help prisoners start a podcast. That's one, there's a prison not that far from here in Concord that I would love to help those guys get that up and running. I'd, help, I'd love to do a course on my, on my memoir called Start With Your Gift, which is a memoir, but it's a career advice. I'd love to take that, make it a class that's, that I can teach the prisoners that they can teach each other. So that kind of stuff. I would love to be in like 
in any and every prison getting that kind of content out. I'd love to help those guys when they get out of jail, take all the scheming and all the things they used in, in jail to survive that is crazy marketable as entrepreneurs, get them out here and get that stuff running. Because they don't really realize the skills they have, how marketable they actually are. So that's something super excited about. I'd love to have to do a lot more uh, setting up, you know, kind of an empire that teaches people podcasting, public speaking, but not where I'm the focus, but people who love what I do, that I can train them. They go out and kind of ripple that effect around. So I have no plans to retire. I mean, I love what I'm doing. When I get to the point when I'm not making sense, they can they can sit me down. But until then, <laughs> I'm like super fired up because I wish I had known the stuff I know now. If I had known that when you all's age, oh my gosh. I just tell my kids, I, both of them, one's going to be 18 in November. The other one's about to turn 15 in August. Those, both those kids, they know enough information to be multi-millionaires. I look at them both and I'm like, right, so which one are you going to be millionaires first? They know that much information. I only found this out like four years ago. And it's sad to say that and four years ago, we're making a lot of money between my wife and I, but we were living paycheck to paycheck because we didn't know how to use it. So that's the stuff that I'm fired up about doing. So you, you, you triggered, you pushed the trigger of something I'm fired up about. So sorry about the long answer. That's what's going to happen. Um, if you weren't a teacher and mentor, what's another gift you would want to Do the Anthony Bourdain thing? The alum who I've had go visit them in Mexico City, Ghana, wherever, go spend three days with them and they pick the oldest and best cook in the family. We go to the market together to buy the food. We sit down, we have a family meal, and then we ask the question with, what did going to Babson mean for you and your family? I think that'd be a lot of fun to go through something like that. The most influential piece of advice you've ever had to to you? Fail Forward. Absolutely, there's a book called Fail Forward by uh, John C. Maxwell. Absolutely. Get comfortable with failure. That would be that would be it. What's your biggest regret in life? That I didn't get earlier that that I learned differently. I wasn't dumb, I learned differently. That I didn't understand that. And how I didn't understand the importance of grit and when things got hard I would just fold. It took a long time to get the maturity to realize that. So that would probably be the correct. Hero hardship highlight. Ooh. Hero. I thought that'd have to be my dad. My dad uh, never went to college, but really smart. Had probably a learning disability like mine. Really was like never, never to really do much about it. Uh, he was a Sing Sing prison guard. I think I told you all that. My dad was a Sing Sing prison guard, maximum security. Uh, and very well read. I mean, you could have a conversation with him just like any other story. Very well read. And uh, see, I'm about to cry now. He had leukemia. And he asked me, he asked me on his deathbed, would you speak of our memorial? And I said, yes. That was one of the hardest things I ever did. That would be the hardship. The highlight would probably be, this is a tough one. Highlight would probably be when my first book came out because I'm the last one in the world that my teachers in high school would think would go to college, never mind go to grad school. I said so when the first book came out, probably would be uh, the highlight.
There is nothing living in your house, so like no family. But it's burning down, you have time to grab one thing, what would you grab? I'm stealing that question for you. <laughs> That's a good well, one thing would I grab from the house? I think I would grab my computer. There's so much content on that computer. I mean, to do so many different things to help so many people, so I probably would grab my computer. If you were in a deserted island with 10 people, what would your role be? Sir, how can I help you? Uh, what is your gift and how do you use that gift? Oh, I mean, I, had to wrote, I wrote a whole book about this, so my gift is a, a teacher monetizing it by teaching, podcasting, blogging, college professor, lecturer, e-commerce platform, so I can do a lot more teaching online. Um, if you could solve one major problem in the world, what would be and why? To get people to think outside their box and not limit what they could do. If I could come up with a system, and a recipe, and teach that to people, that would be the one thing I would do. What's one thing on your bucket list that you absolutely have to do? Oh, gotta get to Africa. I mean, been writing about it, been teaching my gotta get. So here's funny. My wife, in her romantic disposition, oh, we have to go to Paris. I said, look, I ain't going to Paris until I hit that bucket list in Africa first. You know, I, I just like tell her that. She knows that now. She doesn't ask me anymore. One of my students uh, took my course, uh, Food and Civil Rights, or the course I'm teaching in the fall, which is food and politics. And I mentioned something that I teach in the course on food and civil rights. He is in DC when all the protest was breaking out. One of the things I talk about in my book, Southern Food and Civil Rights, is the role that food plays in social movements and protests. He wrote me literally from one of the protests and was talking about how helpful it was to have people coming to these events and donating food so that the events could continue for hours and hours and hours. Things are going to happen that you all learned in this class, and I just, I implore you to please share them because it will be very helpful to all the students when they go like, why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? I, I can explain from your experience why. That's it for this edition of the Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. You'll find links to books discussed on the show, links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show. If you want to know more about what I'm doing, go to fredopi.com, which is my website. You can see information on the books I've published, there are two blogs that I host there, both a food and an athlete's blog, and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast. The whole archive to both those two podcasts are there. At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would, would recommend to you. 